On this week's episode of the Green Door Podcast, we discuss the two towers of the Similarillion. We use Pac-Man to help us understand mortality. We see how even in war, laughter is the best medicine. We try to figure out how many Ainur it takes to turn on the lights. And we feast on some traditional elvish Thai food? All this and more coming up right now. Yodelay May, welcome to Bag End. Hey James, how are you? I was in the neighborhood and I thought I'd pass by and drop off some chitlins for you guys to munch on during the show. Hey May, good to see you. Hey Ads, how's it going? What's that you brought us? Uh, nothing really, just uh, a little bit of a curry pad thai and yep. some Lamba's bread fresh out of the oven. Mmm, smells delicious, but I was unaware that elves ate pad thai. <laughs> no, no, I guess they don't. No, that's from a deli on Cameron in Maine. Oh, yeah, no, I know it well. The food is delicious there. Uh, so, so come on in. You're, you are coming in. We're about to record. You know, I would, and I really wish I could, but I've got an eagle to catch, and I'm on break in Rivendale for the next week, so uh, I'll see you guys in episode six. Oh, I, of course, I knew you were escaping for a March break of sorts in Rivendell. Um, before you go, can you remind me where I can find the vlog, please? Absolutely. Guys, check out the vlog on YouTube. Look for Make a Hellas channel. Definitely do that, um, and I will while you're away, uh, because we're going to miss you while you're in Rivendell, so we'll at least be able to check you out on the vlog, and I hope everybody else does too, because I know you put a tremendous amount of work, and they always turn out fantastic. So Aww. have a great trip, May, and uh, we'll see you in episode six. Thank you so much. Cheers, guys. Take care, May. All right, so uh, what are we going to do, Ads? Just the two of us. Well, I know. I'm looking forward to this one, though. I reckon we should light that fire, settle down, and record. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, we chose to stay in at Bag End this evening, um, mostly because our mailbag was empty last week, and I'm certain that's because we've been roving around from location to location. Uh, as in fact, that's a good point. Uh, I know I'm right because the mailbag this week is full. Yay! Yeah, I know. That's terrific. We've got people who listened and actually cared enough to send questions. So we'll get to you guys in a minute. But you know who you are and tip of the hat. Uh, so ads, I think uh, we should continue on with our tradition of lighting that fire. And I see the matches in your hand. Can you please they are. take it away? Okay, here we go. And while ads does that, I would like to welcome everybody to Bag End. Please take off your cloak. Put your boots by the door and pull up a chair. We saved several uh, by the fire. We are happy to have you here as we jump into Of the Beginning of Days, a chapter that talks about uh, great battles and creation of unbelievable, unimaginable beauty, continents crashing, collapsing, being reshaped and reformed. And we get into um, the difference between living forever and the gift of death. Wow, it's a big show planned, Ads. Are you ready for it? I am ready. It's, it's a really good chapter, isn't it? We've had a lot of fun the last couple of weeks, sort of, well, 
having a chat about it, making notes, uh, exploring ideas. It's going to be good fun. We have to say that uh, we always love to hear Nathan Mills on the way in, and I'd like to thank him again and remind everybody to check out Nathan's terrific nerd music at Beyond the Guitar on YouTube. Uh, thanks again, Nathan, for letting yeah, us thank use you, Nathan. Your, your awesome tunes. And let's get uh, right into ads, um, the mail bag. Now, before we dive into it, before we open it up and get into those awesome questions, we did say that we were going to name the mailbag, give it some sort of title. Ads, we got some we pretty did. good suggestions. Uh, what was your favorite? Well, I I quite like the one that was a play on uh, Shadow Facts. I did too. Well done, May. Uh, that's, that was one of my top two, um, maybe, maybe my favorite or second favorite, along with uh, Jeff LaSala. Uh, but yeah, May's uh, sh- you know, re- receiving faxes. Uh, oh, we got a fax, and then you know maybe a horse could gallop in. Uh, that is a <laughs> definite, definite uh, winner of an idea. In fact, we may use more than one of them. But for this week, we're calling the mailbag chain mail, uh, and it's it's a mithril bag. I hope I can. I hope the sound effect that you're hearing right now sounds to you like mithril, because I'll do my best to find something <laughs> that sounds strong as dra- hard as dragon scales, yet uh, that it doesn't sound very heavy. And I don't know how I'm going to do that, but I will. Yeah, great job, Jeff. Brilliant. Brilliant Jeff, just got great ideas, as usual. And so we're into the chain mail bag. Um, and the first question adds... Yes. ...is from... The first question is from our good friend, Mike Moriarty of the Home One Hangout. Uh, super podcast. Yay. Yay! And Mike, pretty pretty standard question. I think he asks it of, uh, of most people, but... What inspired the creation of this show? Yeah, I saw that come in over Twitter, and thanks a lot for it, Mike. And he said, "Yeah, I, I asked this of all podcasts. I like to know how uh, you, you know, how people got into it." And Ads and I basically, this isn't a, a long answer because it's it happened um, out of nowhere, and yeah. yet it, it all happened at once. We heard the news of uh, Amazon buying the rights to. <laughs> Tolkien works yeah uh, and the details were very foggy but we thought to ourselves there's something coming uh, there's something in the pipe and we want to talk about it since uh, I love Tolkien so much and I was already podcasting about Star Wars uh, I reached out to ads uh, who I work with on the uh, tumbling saber Star Wars podcast and I said look man there's going to be some Tolkien stuff coming our way. What do you think about doing a podcast? And Ad said... I said, absolutely. I mean, it, it happened really quickly, didn't it? We, we had the initial idea. You know, you, you, you presented it as a possibility. And within hours, we had... Well, we were coming up with names. We were coming up with, with ideas. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty quick. And We'd locked down Twitter handles and everything. Uh, this was before our name changed to the Green Door podcast. Uh, but yeah, we'd locked down everything pretty quickly uh, once we, we got the ball rolling, which was really fun. So Mike, yeah. that's how we got started. It happened in November by, uh, you know, beginning of December, we were recording episodes and, and we launched in January and, and there you go. Yeah. So thanks for your question, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Uh, yeah, you, you guys are awesome. Uh, Home One Hangout, thanks, thanks so much uh, for listening and interacting. We do appreciate it. Yeah, Mike, Matt and Chuckles. Yeah, <laughs> Chuckles <laughs> makes me laugh. <laughs> okay, so second question. Um, yes. Second question. This is from... Reach in there deep. Let me, let me use that sound effect uh, ads. Okay. 
Dig I'm around reaching, in there so you can I'm really hear down. it. I'm reaching down. I know who it's from, though. And this is from the hugely talented uh, Matthew Salvatore. So he on Twitter of at Salvatore underscore chief. And he has an absolutely fantastic YouTube site uh, where he does an amazing Lego Star Wars sort of stop motion videos. So I recommend anyone who's listening to it, at least go and check that out. I don't think you'll regret it. Here's a question, though. Favorite location in Middle-earth? I don't think we're going to agree, although we're often two sides of the same coin. <laughs> uh, I don't think we're going to agree on this one just because there is such a massive um, list of, of possible selections and there's so many beautiful places to visit. I'll yeah. let you go first, Ads, and if you steal mine, I'll be shocked, uh, but not annoyed. Okay, all right. Well, I'm going to go... I don't think you're going to go for this one. I agree. Uh, mine's pretty... It's a pretty obvious one, but I'll explain why. So mine would be the Shire and Hobbiton, etc. I think... I think I would choose this location because, as I've said previously, my favourite part of the Lord of the Rings is when Frodo... Sam and Pippin are travelling through the Shire, pursued by Black Riders, um, all the way to, well, Farmer Maggot and Merry and then Bree. And I just love that. And so, as a result, that whole part, the whole Shire, would be my favourite um, favorite location in Middle-earth. And I appreciate there are plenty of others I could have chosen. What about you, James? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not going to... Uh... I'm not going to hold your feet to the fire too hard because you, you certainly took geographically a large location. Uh, and I, I, I might have pinned you to something a little more specific, but the Shire itself is uh, unique, and so I'll let you have it. Uh, and I cannot blame you for taking it. That's an easy answer for me as well. <laughs> I could say that, but I won't. Uh, my answer, and this one, I don't know why, ever since I was a little kid, this part of the, of the book, The Hobbit, always uh, captured me. It's when um, Bilbo is staring off and, and the important people are talking important things. Gandalf's talking to Bayorn. Yeah. And Gandalf's st staring off into the garden thinking to himself, like, I've never seen those kinds of flowers before. I wonder what their <laughs> names are. And it just sounds so beautiful, um, this, this natural setting w with animals that, that sort of um, take care of and have stewardship over the property and these giant bees that pollinate the heck out of everything. Yeah. So everything is, 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 is big, bigger than life, uh, which, which I think Bayorn's whole chapter is bigger than life, including the, the man beast himself. So I would go, uh, as long as I was a friend of Bayorn's, of course, I would choose to spend Indeed. time at his house. Um, there's no safer place, I don't think, in Middle Earth than uh, staying there when he's got your back. And I, I think knowing you, knowing how much you love uh, Bayorn and you know all that all that he's associated with. Now you've said that, it seems a very obvious choice. Uh, but no, well done. I like that one a lot. Thanks. Thank you very much. I uh, the only thing about about Bayorn's place is I wouldn't want to live there full time. I don't think you could eat steak. Um, I think that's probably <laughs> a vegan. That'd be a no no, wouldn't least. it? <laughs> maybe some cheese <laughs> some fish probably but that uh that might be it so um just for the menu I, the, the bread however i'm sure the bread and butter is terrific and and when i used to drink alcohol uh, the mead sounded absolutely delicious um and i'm sure 
there's people out there whose lips are watering uh, at the mention because uh, fresh meat is, is, is awfully good on a hot summer day. Yeah, good stuff. And that, and that actually is quite a, quite a good little link way because uh, Matt's second question, he actually sent another one in as well. Um, superb effort, effort from him. His second question was, you know, where would you go on vacation? Uh, would you go with the elves, with hobbits, with dwarfs or with ents? Um, now, if we tweak that question a bit and you say you're on vacation with Bjorn for, say, a couple of weeks, that's probably perfect. That would be ideal. Yeah. Uh, Matt, thank you so much. And everybody, do check out Matt's YouTube channel. The stop motion stuff that Ads was talking about is really off the hook. It's impressive. He puts in a lot of time, and the results uh, pay off for him. So go check him out. And Matt, I want to say a personal thank you. You've been really, really fantastic at helping us promote the show and just retweeting our yeah, stuff. He has. So, yeah. Personal thank you. Fist bump, buddy. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Moving on. Yeah, let's let's put the hand into the mailbag one more time. Are you doing this one, James, or shall I do it? You take it away. You, you, you'll be in charge of handling that mithril bag until it turns into a uh, galloping horse. Okay, so hand in mithril bag, and I am pulling out a question from Covert Nerd Podcast, at the covert underscore nerd. And he, bless him, sent in four questions. Now, well, that is four times more than we had last week, that's for sure. <laughs> I know. We can't do four. We can't do four. And not least uh, because we've got so much other stuff we want to talk about in this episode. But also, three of those questions I think we're going to put a pin in and come back to when we reach other sections of the book. Um, it'll be better to speak about certain subjects uh, once we've discussed them. So... We'll stick a pin in it. We'll come back to them. However, he sent in the classic. Um, do Barogs have wings? So, James, shall we count down? Three, two, one. Yes. No. <laughs> they don't have wings. Although I'll say I used to think they did, and I was convinced by people smarter than I that uh, it's a language thing. And we've sort of <laughs> mentioned this once before, um, but I'll say that I'll equate it to if someone picked up some modern literature and there was you know, a, a story written in everyday vernacular or um, what's the word I'm groping for here? Colloquialisms. Yes, um, okay. So if, if someone were to, to um, read something very modern in a few hundred years, maybe a thousand years, and it said... Uh, Oh, and then one character turned to the other at the party and said, this party sucks, man, let's bounce. And, and then the, you know, the people reading it in a thousand years were like, they had spring feet. They used yeah. to jump everywhere. Um, Definitely. That's that sort of, yeah, exactly. I think that's how it works out with them. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more now. I mean, when I, let's, let's rephrase that. Before we started podcasting, I think I was probably in the camp that they do. I think having looked into it in a lot more detail um, prior to this question anyway, but, but also as a result of this question, I am now far, far more minded to say they don't have wings. However, I think they should do. They look bloody awesome with wings. Um, but I agree, it's a figurative thing. Uh, you know, Gandalf, the Balrog, when they fight in Moria... 
fools. It's the use of words to describe the shadows, etc., etc. Um, and the word fly yeah. um, meant to flee or to run yeah. as much as it meant to actually fly. And, and it, it gets used in that context more than once. And so... It does. Um, I mean, it's used to describe you know, he, he Gandalf. flew across the room. Exactly. I, I could tell you my, my two-year-old flew across the room today. Yeah. And he, he doesn't have wings, but he did do it. Uh, and so that's the sort of descriptions that get confused and muddled. Uh, and because of, of uh, artistic interpretation as well, you've seen some images. I mean, that does it. It's pretty, once you see it and then you read it yeah. and the word fly is there, it's pretty convincing. No, definitely. And uh, they fall to their deaths. <laughs> so you, you, More than once. you would think that if they had wings, they might use them. They do fall to their deaths more than once. Yeah. And so that's, that, that's a pretty strong argument against it. So there you go. There's our short, long answer. Uh, to the Covert Nerd podcast. Thank you for sending it in. We think that they do slash don't slash probably should have wings. Yes, but let us know what you think and what anyone else listening thinks. How can they do that, Ads? How can they... How can they do that well? Well, that's a lovely link way, James, into social media, so... At the Green Door Pod. At the Green Door Pod. We also have a Facebook group. Uh, and we have 60 lovely members in our Facebook group, uh, the Green Door Podcast. Um, we've had a few new followers uh, since, awesome. since we last recorded. So Welcome. Yeah, we've, we've got, let's have a look, six, six new people. So, as we do, we're going to name you. We have Josh Glover. He does some really good artwork, www.jgloverart.wordpress.com, so check him out. We've got uh, the lovely Amy Elizabeth, Anthony Wick, Elena Gwen, Sorina Higgins, and James. I believe you've been speaking to this chap a few times, as have I. Sean E. Marchese of... The Prancing Pony Podcast. Sean, delighted to have Lord, you on board. The true Lord of the Mark, and, and we're really glad to have Sean following along, and he has been really um, engaged, which yeah, is it's super been great. fun. And their their podcast is awesome. I finally checked out an episode today. I've been purposefully um, avoiding other Tolkien podcasts uh, so as not to uh, steer and direct my own course and path, mm. sort of keep my mind fresh. Uh, but today I, I, uh, I finally broke down and listened to a full episode, which was just f- fabulous. Loved it. Uh, you guys do a great they've job. They've got really good chemistry. I mean, both, both Sean and Alan, you know, they've been doing it for a long time now. They are very, very successful. If you like what we do, and for some bizarre reason you haven't listened to the Prancing Pony podcast, I would really recommend you do. They're currently working through The Hobbit. They've... they've They've dealt with the Silmarillion. You know, they are that far ahead. They've done Silmarillion. Uh, they're, now, they're now on The Hobbit, and they do a fantastic job. So please, you know, do give, give them a listen if you don't already. Yeah, that is terrific advice, Ads. Listen to our friends Alan and Sean at the Prancing Pony podcast. You will not regret it. Uh, ads, I'm going to serve myself up some more of that delicious pad thai that May brought over. Can I get you something? James, um... You pass me another piece of that uh, wafer cake. It's delicious. <laughs> wafer cake? You mean what May brought? Uh, buddy, that's lempest bread. Just a small bite's enough to fill the stomach of a grown man. Ads, how many pieces did you have? Yeah, um, 
I've had four, James. Well, Ads, I will let you catch your breath. Uh, and in fact, it's a good thing you filled up on Lembas. Uh, thank you for dropping that off, May. It is delicious. Uh, because we're diving into the first chapter. And, Ads, would you mind reading the first paragraph? I'd be delighted. Okay. The Quenta Silmarillion. The history of the Silmarils. Chapter 1 of the beginning of days. It is told among the wise that the first war began before Arda was full-shaped, and ere yet there was anything that grew or walked upon earth, and for long Melkor had the upper hand. But in the midst of the war, a spirit of great strength and hardihood came to the aid of the Valar, hearing in the far heaven that there was battle in the little kingdom. And Arda was filled with the sound of his laughter. So came Tolkus the Strong, whose anger passes like a mighty wind, scattering cloud and darkness before it. And Melkor fled before his wrath and his laughter, and forsook Arda, and there was peace for a long age. And Tolkus remained, and became one of the Valar of the kingdom of Arda. But Melkor brooded in the outer darkness and his hate was given to Tolkus forever after. Awesome. Well done, sir. Uh, nice reading. Pleasure. We do, we do enjoy Thank that uh, fitting British, not Cockney ads, British accent. <laughs> okay. yeah. unless, unless you think it yeah. is Cockney, because you, you, you haven't pinned it down yet. I, I asked you what you thought it was, and you said it might be a little Cockney, but it's not fully Cockney. So what is your accent ads, would I... you say? Do you know what? I have been told that I don't have an accent. So make of that what you wish. <laughs> no one in Canada told you that. Um, but <laughs> well read for sure. And it does set the stage nicely because it lets us talk about Tulkis a little. And it lets us talk about yeah. Melkor, um, which we're going to do a lot. And yeah. uh, let's do that right away. So Tulkis hears there's a battle going on on this like shapeless, I, I call it clay. Like, Arda is like clay at this point. There's no life on it yet. There's no vegetation. It's just, like, moldable, and that's what they're doing to it. They're shaping the continents, uh, and Melkor's fighting with them, and it's all getting sort of pounded around and shaping, misshaping, and reshaping. Uh, and then Tulkis hears about the fight and, and is like, I'm joining the party, storms in, and chases Melkor right off the planet. And he actually leaves yeah. Arda entirely uh, and goes out uh, past the, uh, the walls of night. And for a time, this brings uh, a peace. Adds, it occurred to me as I read this chapter that again, or that paragraph, excuse me, that again, we've got the power in someone's voice or the power of sound. Uh, in Ainu Lindale, we heard about how the whole world was sung into creation. Uh, last week, we talked about the power of Arome's horn and uh, Aonwe's horn and, and a few other people, a few other times in the legendarium that horns are important mm. and powerful. I hadn't, but until you've just said it. Yeah, there's uh, a lot of but that. it does, doesn't it? It's yeah, it's uh, it's powerful, isn't it? I mean, he, as you said, he he comes in, he he saves the day, and you know, Melkor fled before his wrath and his laughter, and and it's the fact that he is in defiance. You know, he. He is, 
he knows he's good. He knows he's powerful, <laughs> and he's come down. He's come down to have a play, basically. And he he's enjoys seen it. Melkor. He enjoys the fight. Yeah, the, the blood Definitely. just makes him smile. You know, he's he's in he's into it, one hundred percent. Tulkis sort of saves the day and sets up a time of peace where Melkor is gone for a little while at least, and the Arda, uh, the Arda, excuse me, the Valar can uh, shape Arda without disruption, and they start to do that. Uh, yeah, I do. I mean, it's interesting what you just said there about time, because when I was reading that first chapter, what sprung out to me was the fact that this is this book that Silmarillion is, is written by the elves, um, and this is a moment in the history of Arda where the elves weren't around, and I wonder what time actually means when they mention that there was this battle and how long it was going on for and how long peace lasted for because I suspect it was far longer than the length of that chapter suggests yeah there is something earlier on and I wish I wish I was quick enough and sharp enough to reference the uh, passage exactly well what do you know editing room me is quick enough and sharp enough um it says in the Ainu Lindale of the passage of time before the measure of time. For the great music had been but the growth and flowering of thought in the timeless halls and the vision only a foreshowing. But now they had entered in at the beginning of time. And the Valar perceived that the world had been but foreshadowed and foresung. And they must achieve it. So began their great labors in wastes unmeasured and unexplored and in ages uncounted and forgotten, until in the deeps of time, in the midst of the vast halls of Ea, there came to be that hour and that place where was made the habitation of the children of Iluvatar. But there's something we've already read that says that all of this stuff before the counting of time, which we're about to talk about, before the coming of the firstborn, etc., uh, before the yeah. first ages of Middle-earth, is is a really really long time time out of mind beyond sort of uh, measurement in years so i think you're right to point out that this didn't happen uh, over the course of a couple of seasons um this, no. this happened over whatever uh, eons and eons i guess is the biggest word i know how to describe time <laughs> um and and from Good there stuff. uh they've got this time of peace and so uh yavana is like, finally, I've got, I want to grow stuff. Uh, I've got all the, these ideas for, for vegetation and, and, and uh, animals and birds, and I've got, I've got ideas, so let me sow my first seeds, but in order for them to grow, I'm gonna need some light. Uh, and so she, she says to Ole, um, and she says to um, Varda, can you guys help me out? Um, if you build some giant pillars and fill them, Varda, if you do your, your, what you did with the stars in the sky, you know, light them up, um, I can grow my seeds. And that's sort of what happens next. There's this beautiful um, moment of, of uh, illumination in which the earth begins to grow. And I, I photosynthesis exactly. Uh, they go and life <laughs> and light go together. So like, there's this theme of darkness bad, uh, light good, and it's it's uh, right in your face sometimes, and sometimes you got to dig a little. But here is another example yeah. of um, light is life, and she couldn't do what she wanted without uh, the first attempt at putting lights on Arda, and there is more than one attempt which is coming up as well. Adds 
did you want to add anything to that uh, section or did you want to continue on talking about uh, the symmetrical design of ARDA uh, that's coming up next? Let, let's go to that because I think that's a really interesting um, thing that we both picked up on, wasn't it? The, the, the symmetry that... The symmetry that the Velar created. Right. Their first design was in, symmetrical. In, it, 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 it says so in the text. We'll, we'll read was. the excerpt or, or the passage uh, maybe in a couple of minutes. But it says um, that uh, there was a symmetry that they were going for in this original design uh, as everything was, was growing under these two lights. Oh, and we should mention that those two pillars that were put, um, uh, all those who read along and did their homework know, were put on the two poles of the earth, the north and the south end. And I do want to mention, I sort of like the idea, speaking of symmetry, um, that because they had put them on the two poles of the earth, their light would have blended uh, at the equator. Um, would have the, the light of the two lamps would have sort of met each other at the equator. And this um, was the part of the planet that developed the most lush light uh, because the seeds planted there got light from both lamps, which I thought was really yeah, cool, it, um, how it paralleled our own world, how you know the, the rainforest and the lushest life is around our equator. So science matching the And it was, in, it was in Middle Earth as well, wasn't it? It was, the, the, these lamps were constructed and, and put up in what is, as far as you know, we understand it, Middle Earth. True. So that is where the Valar based themselves initially, on, on the Isle of Almaren, is it, I think? On or not, yes, on the island. And uh, they were originally in what eventually became Middle Earth, and they did move on afterwards because of that guy who's hiding in space. He didn't stay out there very long. Um, as no, he didn't. The, uh, the lamps were um, illuminated, uh, he was he was making plans up there. So let's uh, let's get to the first section that I'm going to read here. Uh, ads, as you did such a nice yes. job on the introduction <clears throat> uh, about the raising of the lamps. It says, <clears throat> "Get my big boy voice ready here." In that time, the Valar brought order to the seas and the lands and the mountains, and Yavanna planted at last the seeds that she had long devised. And since, when the fires were subdued or buried beneath the primeval hills, there was need of light, Ole, at the prayer of Yavanna, wrought two mighty lamps for the lighting of Middle-earth, which he had built amid the encircling seas. Then Varda filled the lamps, and Manway hallowed them, and the Valar set them upon high pillars, more lofty far than any mountains of the later days. One lamp they raised near to the north of Middle-earth, and it was named Iluin, and the other was raised in the south, and it was named Ormal. And the light of the lamps of the Valar flowed out over the earth, so that all was lit as it were in a changeless day. Um, so yeah, I, I, I like the idea that they had the peace and they were able to um, illuminate the planet because no one was messing with them, and so she plants her seeds next. Uh, and the idea that the first light that they give to the planet is 24 hours or whatever. I know. It's nonstop. It's brilliant, yeah. Um, yeah. Incredible when you think about it. It's, it, it, it's, it doesn't get dark. No, if you're trying to grow a planet, if you're trying to, you know, if, if I had a garden and I could give it 24 hours of sun, that would be ideal. Uh, and so the, the powers yeah. that be are like, okay, Yavanna wants to grow stuff on the earth. Let's, let's light it up for her. And, and the, it's, it's almost, it gives the... 
it gives the the imagery of a sort of artificial light. It's true. It does talk about um, how the light isn't quite as brilliant. It's it's, it's a dimmer light um, than what uh, eventually will become known as uh, daylight. Uh, uh, just another yes. quick thing I'm, I'm going to read here to, to give a shout out to our co-host May. It says, And beasts came forth and dwelt in the grassy plains or in the rivers or in the lakes or walked in the shadows of the woods. As yet no flower had bloomed nor any bird had sung. So it's talking just after the lights are lit about the first creatures that come into Middle Earth. And it's giant, mm. giant beasts, uh, but no flowers or birds yet. And May pointed out that that matches, uh, in sequence anyways, Darwin's uh, progression. First uh, with the larger uh, animals like dinosaurs, where, and, and yes. birds came much later on after the dinosaurs. And flowers apparently, have, this was news to me, but... I believe for when she tells me flowers uh, were later developed amongst plant life and earlier it was it was grasses, uh, etc. Um, so I, I thought that was sort of a, a really cool spot, a really cool find on her part to point that out. And I know you did too. Yeah, I, I, I love that. I mean, that then got me thinking about, well, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily touch base on all levels. But... No, but it, I, love, I love the imagery of it. So yeah, it's... it's Throw it, throw it in the ring because it's a really cool idea with our guy hiding in space. Okay, so you have the dinosaurs. Now we know that the dinosaurs are now extinct. You know, you don't see a T Rex walking around anymore. Um, and I like the idea taking it a level further than than sort of May's suggestion is that you've got Melkor who's not in not in order he's he's up above he's he's sort of watching from afar and i like the the imagery that maybe he's the meteor and he comes crashing down to cause chaos and to to destroy everything that has been created in the spring of arda fiery um, ball so, of wrath no, he, he, yeah he doesn't come the, in and, and, and the dinosaurs are no more yeah no you're right he doesn't come in and do it in one punch like the meteor does specifically but the image the idea that he does come in from um, the outside, and yeah. he does uh, collapse that sort of first design, that first planet, and, and a lot of the life that went along with it he is ravaged and ruined. So, um, no, that, I liked when you said that as well, you guys. We had a great conversation with our DMs as usual and came up with some really fun <laughs> conversation pieces, including that one. Uh, yeah. So I, I don't know what people think about that, uh, if anybody had, had ever thought about it that way or if those ideas make sense to you. But if, if you like that or hate it, we'd love to hear about it. Um, we, we're definitely getting into uh, the, the meaty part of it now. And so there's going to be lots of different tangents and lots of different theories we throw at the wall. And some of them may stick for you and some of them may not. Yeah. But uh, we'd, we'd love to hear either way. Uh, Definitely. No, it's it's uh, it's always good to hear hear what you guys think as well. So you know, we are we are just you. We're just you know big lovers of the books, and as James said, we're we're coming up with our own ideas and we're we're putting them out there for you to to have a think as well. All right. So let's continue along um, with the early uh, days, the very very first growth, the spring of Arda is what it gets referred to as. And so hmm. um, the lights are lit, the pillars are set, uh, stuff starts to grow. We have our first beasts. Melkor is watching all this, and he gets uh, jealous and envious. And, of course, he wants to corrupt and destroy everything. So what does he do? He waits for his opportunity to sneak back in. That sneaky yeah. sneaker. 
Um, Climbs over the wall. Yeah, he, he comes in while uh, everybody else, uh, all of the powers that be, are sort of partying and resting. After they get everything set up and they're happy with uh, the way things are going, Tulkis uh, decides to have uh, a party and, and he weds uh, Nessa. And uh, they, he sleeps and everybody has a big feast and enjoys themselves. And while that's sort of all going on, Melkor sneaks back in and he digs himself out a hideout. Tell us about the hideout a little bit, Ads. Okay, so he creates Utumno, which is effectively a hideout dug into Arda. And from that place, he starts to pollute or uh, distort the beauty that had been created previously. That's right. And... Yeah, it's 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 a nice play on the word spring, in my view, because in my head there's an image of a fountain or a spring, and it's it's beautifully pure, clear water, and then a pollutant comes in, and suddenly the the spring is no longer pure anymore, and you can you can see the evil that seeps in from Melkor from his his hiding hole in in, in Tumno. And gradually, evil starts to spread across Middle-earth until the Valar realise that, you know, something's up. No, that's it. You're, you're um, putting it exactly in the words that I would have struggled to find uh, because I, <laughs> I, I seem to be tripping over them tonight. But he seeping, the, seeping in the idea that the spring of Arda is both seasonal and, you know, like a fountain spring uh, being polluted and corrupted works, works on, on mm. a couple of levels and the imagery is beautiful and it is described that way in the chapter how his evil sort of seeps like, like water would, uh, seeps through the land and the, and the Valar become aware of him not because they, they know for sure but they see the corruption happening, they see the, the dank... Yeah. Uh, the corrupted creatures, and we're told he also is somehow uh, communicating with, he has spies, uh, and he's corrupted some of the uh, powers that be, the Maiar, um, are on his side and feeding him information and stuff. So uh, they become aware of him, uh, and as they become aware of him and his effects on their paradise, he attacks. Um, they're sort of he un does. They're unawares, and he, he, he has... Faith in his fortress of Utumno, and he has faith in the um, power of the beings he's corrupted and the, the creatures he's created. And so he attacks and takes the Valar by surprise. And uh, he basically destroys all of their first creation and knocks down those giant uh, sources of light whose fire. Uh, is described as destructive and ravages and ruins uh, Middle-earth and Arda. So Melkor sort of and gains that, a victory um, at, at, at that point anyways. He does. And that, James, I think, takes us nicely back to what we touched on previously with the, the, you know, the, the symmetry idea. So Arda is this, at, at this point in time, in this, the spring of its being, it is, it is perfect you know it describes uh it describes it as a symmetry now if you think of uh, if you think of say a face now beauty is supposedly uh a face which is almost symmetrical 
But if it becomes symmetrical, if both sides of the face look exactly the same, then it, it looks strange. It, it doesn't. It doesn't quite work. And so what Melkor has done again by by coming in and spreading this evil, he's actually turning something that was too perfect into something that actually is even more beautiful as a result. Uh, there, there is the need for these imperfections. I think that's the word that's key there. The, it to look the good. beauty lies in the imperfections. And, and a lot of times in yeah. life you see examples of this in nature. And, and like you said, in, in someone's face, perfect symmetry uh, looks odd because there's not a lot of perfection does. In, in nature. Uh, and we can we can thank Melkor for that since he came in and busted up the uh, perfectly symmetrical first design. Um, Good job, Melky. Yeah. And because of because of his corruption, um, the Valar said, "You know what? That continent that we were on of Middle Earth is ruined. Mm. It's not ruined uh, beyond repair. We're going to try to save the stuff uh, that we can, and." We'll try to rebuild it um, when we can. However, before we do that, we've got to find a safe place to live. Let's move to the continent on the west side of the sea. Uh, we'll raise up some giant mountains, and uh, we'll build a new kingdom for ourselves there. And that's their next move. Uh, yes. And like you say, what they end up building uh, exceeds their original design and beauty. Uh, what they created in Valinor, which is what the, um, or I, I guess I should say a man, um, what they create there is uh, exceptional beyond what they were able to create the first time because they, they had experience, they get a second crack, they made improvements, and everything on that side of the sea was undying, untouched by Melkor's evil, which there's two things I want to say about that, but the first one is the evil spread um, across the continent but stopped at the sea, and it, so it seems like Ulmo and his water and that powerful um, element of water containing the music of life and the music of the Ainur, uh, again, seems to have an effect beyond all other elements uh, in Arda and stops and contains uh, Melkor's evil. Don't you think that's sort of cool? Yeah, I do think that's cool. And, you know, where they were based in Middle-earth, they were on an island that was surrounded by water and they, they moved to a bigger island surrounded by water again uh, it shows they there's some I, sort of safety or security in that and there are yes, other islands to, kill, to come as well I love it. right yep yeah i know i when you when you said olmo earlier on um yeah I, I thought that was a really a really good catch you know he is there from the very start you know protecting arda effectively oh, that's it and you know, after after Melkor sort of does the surprise attack, he, he runs away. He runs and hides in his uh, in Utumno, and and Tulkis basically is like, Hulk! Smash! let's. <laughs> I, I put in the show notes something to the effect of uh, Tulkis is pissed and wants to do his best Hulk <laughs> impression. Uh, smash everything! Just destroy the continent. We'll 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 shake him out of his hiding place. Uh, yeah. But Manwe is more level-headed than that, and he realizes that uh, not only would this basically f finish off destroying the entire uh, continent and Middle-earth, but the children of Iluvatar, the elves and the men, the first and second mm. born, are still hiding somewhere. They don't know where they are exactly, and they don't want to risk no. them as collateral damage going and picking another fight, waging war with Melkor and all his minions, right? <laughs> 
Yeah, absolutely. As you said, Tolkis is all for Hulk smash and, <laughs> and, and going along and, and beating the living daylights out of Melkor. Which he probably would have. Who, yeah, and, you know, that, that sums up Melkor as well. You know, he's all for the evil, but then he scoots off and hides. You know, it's it's a common trend, actually. He He's... <sighs> He's the big bad, but actually he's he's not got much um, bravery, I wouldn't no, say. No, no gumption, uh, not a lot of uh, conviction either. He's sort of, you know, he's very opportunistic and very manipulative. Yeah. Uh, and Tolkis was, you know, Tolkis would have done some serious damage, I would imagine. Would have done so much damage that the elves and the men may have never, may have never um, awoken because they might have been lost in the battle. So Manway basically <laughs> um, puts a halt on attacking Melkor, lets him, lets him go and hide. Uh, and another point that I'll, I love bringing up, May's great uh, spots and great finds. She sees things in the text. She says, the word autumno reminds me of autumn. And from Autumno, from Autumn, yeah. the spring of Arda was, was uh, destroyed. And she said those are, like, in my mind, two opposing uh, images and ideas. And, and to have the conflict occur um, centered around those two, you know, the spring of Arda and Utumno, for her, was, was uh, there was something important there. And it, I don't know, it, it resonates with me as well. I don't know the roots of the word, and I'm sure we could look them up. I don't know that it was necessarily intentional. But applicability, applicability, applicability. Um, for her, that, yes. that uh, struck a chord, and for me, it kind of did too. I thought that was cool. Yeah, I mean, autumn leads to winter, doesn't it? So it's it's a dark, cold, extreme, you know, weather system. Whereas spring is is the start of something fresh and new, and and leads to the green of of summer and and all that that brings. So. It's a clever play. Well done, well, mate. Let's, uh, let's take her clever point and move on to another beautiful reading. Uh, we, we talked about the um, Valar deciding to build it themselves a new home. And so let's yes. talk about, let's, uh, let's read the passage where it describes the raising of the mountains, the creation of the Pylori, and uh, mm -hmm. all of that good stuff. So... And since Melkor was returned to Middle-earth, and they could not yet overcome him, the Valar fortified their dwelling, and upon the shores of the sea they raised the Pylori, the mountains of a man, highest upon earth. And above all the mountains of the Pylori was that height upon whose summit Mamwe set his throne, Taniquatil, the elves named that holy mountain. Awesome. Uh, that's basically the highest point on Middle-earth where he sets his throne uh, and, and rules and sees uh, everything, protects uh, what he can of the planet. Unfortunately for him, um, the fortress of Utumno seems to be uh, laid in darkness and shadow and, and buried to a point where he can't find it immediately. So, Because the, the, you know, the, the, lamp, the lamps are gone now, so Middle-earth is, is now... In twilight again. That's true. Um, the the continent itself will be in darkness uh, under starlight, of course, not complete darkness, but certainly no. uh, not much more than uh, haze, because there wouldn't even have been a moon in the sky uh, to illuminate things. Next, we've got lights on, take two. Uh, we've lost the lamps, yes. but Yavanna has a plan. Uh, this part, and I know you just read a chapter ads, but since we do love hearing that, right. that non-accent of yours, you're going to read. You're going to read this <laughs> part as well. 
In full, in full cockney. So, uh, I'll set the okay. scene. Uh, they need light. Um, and Yavanna is determined to continue to release these creations she's dreamed up, this life she wants to blossom on the planet. And now that they've got a new safe setup on the west side of the Polori Mountains, um, she dreams up something pretty cool. So take it from there. And she sat there, long upon the green grass, and sang a song of power, in which was set all her thought of things that grow in the earth. The Nienna thought in silence, and watered the mould with tears. And as they watched, upon the mound, there came forth two slender shoots, and silence was over all the world in that hour. Nor was there any other sound save the chanting of Yavanna. Under her song, the saplings grew and became fair and tall and came to flower. And thus there awoke in the world the two trees of Valinor. Of all things which Yavanna made, they have most renown. And about their fate, all the tales of the elder days are woven. That's a pretty important statement. Uh, and those are two very important trees. And so the lamps are replaced with uh, something more natural in a place that's yes. more protected, uh, whose light uh, is more blessed and hallowed um, and, and natural. natural. Uh, and mm. also, I would say, although the lamps were, were I, I said more hallowed, I don't know if you can have more hallowed, the lamps were also hallowed, but they were um, set in a land um, that was undying. Um, yes. This place that, that the trees grew, um, it's not just the, the Valar and the Maiar uh, who had What's the word? I'm immortality. Uh, everything there was blossoming and growing forever, and so. Mm. I mean, it's, it says, "For the deathless dwelt there, and their nought faded nor withered. Neither was there any stain upon flower or leaf in that land, nor any corruption or sickness in anything that lived, for the very stones and waters were hallowed." The very stones and waters were hallowed. So, yeah, there you go. I would say uh, she picked as safe a spot as she could for her new venture. And these trees uh, were the sun and the moon. And there's some beautiful imagery describing the flowers being golden and dripping with, with uh, yellow light and the, the flowers mm. being silver and, and sparkling with a, you know, a, 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 dull, a duller glow. And it's very clear that they're describing, the imagery they're describing uh, revolves around the sun and the moon. And one, one tree is more like the sun and the other is more like the moon. And what, what I loved when I was reading this was the names of the trees, you know, Telperion and, and Laurelin. They sound like they should be in Lothlorien. Absolutely, they they are they are you know golden trees. They are beautiful, stunning, uh, natural trees. And I just I just loved I loved the imagery and and also the fact that they were brought to being by song. Watered, watered as, with as tears. much of yeah as as much of what we've seen. So far, you know, song singing has been a major part, but then to have Nienna water them with her own tears, and I, I wonder, I wonder why she was crying. She cried for all the hurts of the world, right? And the, and Arda had just been attacked. Did she know what was coming as well? She did have. Did she have foresight? I'm not sure, but she. I'm sure she would have had plenty to cry about for for what Melkor had just done to uh, to Middle Earth. Um, 
you know, in, in ruining the spring of Arda, there was a lot of a lot of beautiful things corrupted. So those tears were flowing a plenty for the weeper. Yes, uh, I think that's just. I think that's a great image. Oh, I love, love, um, love, love, and I, and the idea that the trees were were glowing, uh, lighting up the continent. Uh, but again, the continent, Middle Earth, would still be in a time of darkness, and the trees' light did not cross over the Polori Mountains and did not illuminate. Middle Earth, where there were still things um, growing and beasts and creatures living, and in this darkness, they were being corrupted yes. further and further. And what I would, sorry, James, what I was going to say was that these trees—they are pivotal. I mean, they play such a, a massive role in what comes later on. Uh, without you know giving too much away they or or things associated with them become almost the essence of the story and uh not least you know they are responsible for time that's the uh the next bullet point we do have to talk about uh ad so i'll let you lead it since you said time first before light there was no measured time no and just like our planet um we we use the sun and and, and how many times our own planet, you know, turns in circles and revolves around the sun to delineate days and, and years. Uh, they also started counting time uh, with the creation of these trees because the trees waxed and waned. Take it from their ads. So, yeah, they, they, they effectively, they, they worked in sync. And from the moment of the trees, time, time was created. Uh, it says Telperion was the elder of the trees and came first to full stature into bloom. And that first hour in which he shone, the white glimmer of a silver dawn, the Valar reckoned not into the tale of hours, but named it the opening hour and counted from it the ages of their reign in Valinor. And it's, it's the waxing and waning of both trees that effectively become the hours in the day. Love it. Beautiful. Yeah. And the only image I can I can associate with that is, you know, when they use words like wax and wane, I mean, the, if you can't see that these are going to lead to something celestial that you already know about, I mean, there's some foreshadowing going on here that's pretty thick. Um, yes. Definitely, uh, I said, take two of uh, lighting the planet. There was take one with the pillars, and if you've been paying attention to the podcast so far, you'll see Tolkien liked threes. <laughs> so don't get to it to the trees. No, make the most of them, but yeah. <clears throat> <laughs> they, they're not going to, yeah, well, anyway. <laughs> Let's move on to the uh, oh, I'm last I'm looking forward to couple this. of chapters. Yes. Uh, excuse me, last couple of paragraphs of this chapter, which I could have spent the whole night on this as well. In fact, I had to go back and revamp the notes to remind myself to, to spend enough time on the lamps and the trees, which are so important, because... When I read the chapter again this time, I was struck by how little I had, um, how little I had absorbed, retained, yeah. yeah, retained about the difference between the mortality of men and what the gift of death really meant. And so it goes on to explain in this chapter that uh, after the Ainur sing the song of creation and leave into Arda, Iluvatar uh, sits and thinks to himself for an age, which 
sounds like an infinity probably since they weren't counting time yet. Um, and he, and he, he decided that the elves were going to be the fairest and most beautiful um, creatures and they were going to do the most um, good and do the most beautiful things for Arda. But the gift he was going to give to man was the gift of death. And that when they died, they would escape the um, known world uh, and go to a greater destiny, so a higher level of heaven. Maybe Iluvatar's halls uh, with him. Maybe not. It's not specified. But the elves don't know where they go. In fact, the Valar don't even know where they go. No. Uh, because the Valar and the elves are bound to the music. They're bound to play out um, the vision that they saw and they're tied to it until the end of its time and uh, I didn't really realize what that meant until this reading of the chapter and I, we d dug a little deeper I'm going to get to my Pac-Man analogy yeah please do just a second please do. Um, adds. Is, is there anything you want to add to that before I do well I, I want to read I want to read something um, I don't know whether we should do that after you've done your Pac-Man analogy uh, we'll do it after um, since you're um, Reading probably, uh, you know what? I'm gonna cut that out. I'm gonna say read it first. So yeah, uh, you know what adds? Actually, you, you go ahead and, and read it, and then I'll give my Pac-Man analogy that uh, hopefully will still fit in. Okay, so I have recently purchased a reader's companion to the Lord of the Rings by the wonderful uh, Wayne Hammond and Christina Scull. I would strongly recommend anyone who is interested in the the detail to to pick up a copy because it is fantastic. Now. I'm going to read a, a paragraph from it where uh, Tolkien, in a letter to Milton Waldman, the same Milton Waldman that's in the front of the Silmarillion in that letter that was, uh, was presented, mm -hmm. he, he writes, to explain more fully the different fates of elves and men, and he says, the doom of the elves is to be immortal, to love the beauty of the world, to bring it to full flower with their gifts of delicacy and perfection, to last while it lasts, never leaving it even when slain, but returning. And yet, when the followers, the men, come to teach them and make way for them to fade as the followers grow and absorb the life from which both proceed, the doom, or the gift, of men is mortality freedom from the circles of the world a mystery of god of which no more is known than that what god has purposed for men is hidden a grief and an envy to the immortal elves and i think wow. that's just an incredible well thought process that we can see from tolkien in those letters yeah, no, that's a perfectly timed addition. Thanks for putting that in. And it still segues me into my Pac-Man analogy. Uh, but I will say um, to the envy of the elves and even the powers. Yes. It says in, in the text that even the, uh, um, with time, even the powers would grow to envy the gift of death and the ability to escape the circles um, of time and go to this greater mysterious uh, place. And they are linked, aren't they, James? I mean, there is a definite connection between the elves and the Valar, far and more, the, far elves more and than the Valar others. have, yeah. They, they do interact a lot more. The, the Valar seem to care um, for and understand um, the elves better, and so um, 
they're more enamored with and involved with. They mm. don't get men. Men seem to the elves, especially it says in the text, seem of all the Ainur seem like Melkor the most. Yes. Uh, to, to the elves, they seem to break it, break stuff a lot. They're not satisfied. They they want they want to get somewhere else to get to the next step. They do want to. They do. Uh, bef- you're, you're getting ahead of me. I want to. I want to plug in my Pac-Man. Go for it. Go for it. Um, since I said that Pac-Man word too many times now. If you've ever played the game, um, which most of us have, the elves are the ghosts, and Pac-Man is men. And what I mean is, the game of Pac-Man is self-contained, and when you're playing, um, the ghosts can easily kill the men. (laughs) Uh, They just have to touch them. Uh, But every once in a while, the Pac-Man will get a magic ball and be able to eat the ghosts. Um, when that happens, though, the ghosts don't really die. They lose their bodies, and they go to the little side box. We'll call the little side box uh, on the screen Halls of Mandos. Mm. Uh, and they go there until um, the end of the game, or until they get their body back and come back in the game, which is really quite similar to what happens to the elves. Whereas, when Pac-Man dies, it's game over. And the machine shuts off, and the nobody really has any idea what happens next inside the confines of the game. Yes. And that's my Pac-Man analogy for the difference between men and elves. I love it. Elves don't ever really die. No. They just lose their body, and they go somewhere else, and, and even uh, can be given another body to come back and try again. It happens to a few of them. Uh, uh, but even if they're not, their souls, their, their spirits just wait. Yes. Um, and play out and don't leave the earth. They stay on the planet and they, they still get to experience and see and um, they still exist until the end of the music. At which point, another mystery is the elves don't know what their fate is. They don't know if that's it, game over, um, or if they're going to be uh, granted um, access to this place where men have gone mysteriously. Yeah. And hobbits have gone and dwarves have gone. Yeah, I mean, and take it, I, mean, I love that analogy. I think when you said that to me the first time, it was like, okay, where's James going with this? Pac-Man, are you sure? <laughs> but, <laughs> but it works really well. And if you take it to uh, the thinking of those ghosts, the elves, when they come back, they stay on that level. So if you think Pac-Man has a series of levels... Um, the ghosts just stay on that level. The That's true. actual Pac-Man, i.e. the men, when they complete the level, they go to the next one. Yeah, they get, they get to advance and move on. Yeah. And that's, that, that's a nice segue, Ads, because that's the idea I cut you off and said you were getting ahead of me, but I do want to talk about the idea that it, it gives two distinct attitudes to the d- different races. For the elves, the earth is the be-all, end-all, final destination. It is their paradise. They're in heaven. Yeah. They're beautifying it. They love it. They're attached to it. It means everything to them. Whereas the hearts of men long for something greater. And so they're only... The earth, Arda, is a waiting room for them. They're in a rush. Their attachment to it... They are. And their attachment to it is so much less. And so that's why they they seem to not care for it in, in nearly the same way as the elves do, which is a trait that is consistent throughout the entire race. I think you have individuals maybe who like gardening, but in general, the elves have a greater appreciation for the planet they're on, whereas the men don't appreciate it because they're longing for something greater. Yes, and the same way the Valar, you know, the Valar are creating this, this wondrous place 
Uh, and the elves are very much sort of going along with that mindset. But as you said, the, the men, they're not, they're not going to be here. This is just the, the, a stepping stone to a greater paradise. Sure. Um, and, and as a result, they, they don't invest in it in the same way. Now, what I wanted to, to set you up, because I loved this when you, when you said this to me, um, there is the gift, gift of death to men, which sounds really strange. But when Iluvatar made that gift of death, it was then, well, I'll let you, I'll let you go into it, but it was affected by Melkor. Absolutely. The gift of death was supposed to be just that, a gift. Uh, it was supposed to be seen as a release, as relief, as moving on to something amazing and wonderful. But Melkor corrupted it, yeah. corrupted the idea of death and, and attached fear to it and put doubt in the minds of men. And so um, the idea that uh, is, is pretty relatable to most people who read the book that you fear death is attributable to Melkor, mm. when really, if you knew what you were supposed to know and had faith in the, in the creator, um, you know, pretty, you can see his Catholic or Christian influence uh, pretty heavily here. But if, if you have faith in the creator, um, you wouldn't fear death. In fact, you'd look forward to it, and that would be um, your greatest uh, achievement would be death. And that, that faith in, in the next stage is what... <laughs> When you take um, Aragorn and yes. and Arwen, now Arwen gives up her everlasting life as an elf to become a mortal because the two of them trust in the the next stage. That's right. And they, they'll be together. Then she knows if she if she stays a, an elf. That's right. She, if she stays an elf, when he dies, he yeah. moves uh, on, and she stays behind. And I love that she can't ever leave. So she wants to spend eternity with him. She gives up um, her life, and it makes it's much more understandable why she does that. Yes, it's also um, more heartbreaking when you think about the father daughter relationship between Elrond and Arwen. Uh, absolutely, that means he never gets to see her again, right? Absolutely, and you know the readers of the book. Um, you will appreciate that but even people that are listening to this podcast and maybe they don't know the books as well but they remember the films and the scenes where Arwen and El Elrond are you know parting to be able to look at it with that mindset now it really strengthens why there was this big decision and why Elrond was so against it because in unless you understand that it's it's not something that clicks into place as easily. No, I mean, there's always the, the sadness, of course, with a you know parent, um, a, a parent and a child losing each other, so being separated. But it's there's much more to it to, to that when you know the history and sort of the the big whole picture effect of her choice. Yeah, that means she'll she'll be leaving the world forever. Uh, one more thing to point out before we get into um, our first timers club which is coming up next, is hmm. uh, the relationship between the Valar and the elves, like you started to say. Uh, the Valar are the creators of this world, and they're the gods of the elves. Whereas um, men's god is really Iluvatar. So you've got sort of two versions of the same thing going on. The elves worship the Valar because they're creating their world and their paradise and their afterlife. Hmm. They are sort of their be-all-end-all because everything starts, ends, 
and is wrapped up in the music and Arda. Yes. Whereas men um, can look beyond um, the Valar, which to the elves seems crazy, but they can, they can say like, well, yeah, they're pretty cool. However, you know, we're going to see the big guy. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. and uh, it explains that relationship, that closeness. And in the tales that are coming up, you'll see there's much more involvement with the elves and the uh, Ainur than there are with the men. The men are almost an afterthought, aren't they? Yeah, the, the strangers, the uh, the followers. Their their time is coming, but it, the, the these tales are certainly more elf. Yes. Uh, involved. Uh, wow, ads. Good. Plowed, plowed our way through that chapter. I'm sure we uh, made some small errors along the way, but globally we covered most of the bullet points, and I think we may have introduced at least one or two new ideas to people who are listening along. Fantastic. Fantastic. First Timers Club. Indeed. Some people are crazy enough (laughs) to read The Silmarillion before anything else by J.R.R. Tolkien. Surely not. Not The Hobbit. Not Lord of the Rings. No. No. Not even any of the um, more children stuff like the Father Christmas letters, uh, which maybe would be uh, sort of more obscure but at least not as dense and daunting. But no, no, right into the Silmarillion. At the beginning. Amazing. Crazy. Mad. Uh, Chronological, I guess, is what these people want to be. And so (laughs) big shout out to Carlos Candido. Yay. Rob Wade. Yeah, I mean, come on. I mean, these guys um, are amazing. And we got to talk about the guys. We'll save the girls for last because there is also a fair maiden... Uh, uh, a, <laughs> usurper, a usurper minion shield maiden um, named Karen, who we're going to talk about in a minute. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. We, we group you guys all together in our first timers club, and uh, we're going to give you guys tip of the hat, fist bump, big shout out. That is a serious challenge that you guys are taking on, and uh, I, I, I just want to applaud it. Well done. Yeah. We're going to keep checking in with you and uh, l- let us know what you think, how it's going, what you like, what you don't because everybody who's read it a few times uh, can live vicariously as you discover all of these amazing adventures, tales, stories, heartbreaks for the first time. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we jest a little bit, but it is, it is fantastic what the three of them are doing because, you know, Carlos, Rob, Karen, they are literally picking up the Silmarillion and that is their entry point. They don't know, um, they don't know the, the Bilbos, the Frodos, the Gandalfs in, in the same way that everyone else does. Their entry point is is the Manways, the Vardas, and the intense language that the Silmarillion has. So it's really exciting to know that those three individuals, who I'm pretty certain are going to see this through, you know, knowing them, knowing them a little bit ourselves, and to be able to get their perspective on something without that depth of knowledge behind it is is going to be really exciting. So. Hats off to the three of you. Well done, guys. We're calling it the uh, Carlobrin <laughs> Club. That's the amalgamation of your three names that was the most elf-sounding I could come up with. Carlobrin. Carlobrin. Carlobrin? Um Well done, guys. Now, we do want to say thank you to a few people, uh, but before we thank anyone, that lovely, amazing, awesome outro music, yeah. once again, yep. Harry Merle. Thanks, Harry. Uh, I, I love Harry's um, tone in this song. 
It's uh, the kind of thing that I could listen to as I sipped on Bjorn's mead and <laughs> watched the flowers grow in my fictional um, Middle Earth vacation world. I do, uh, I do, James. I listen. I listen to the very, very end of the podcast. Partly because you tend to put a little snippet at the end, which is is amusing. But the main reason is is Harry's music, because once you start to hear it, you just want to finish it. You know, you want to get to the end of it. So um, really, really good. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Harry. And uh, I wanted to also say thank you to the Prancing Pony podcast um, for their shout outs, interactions and inspiration this week, because uh, listening to their show made me want to work a little harder. Good job, guys. Yeah, I've got a few. Uh, Also, yeah, go for it. Well, I was going to say, you know, Jeff, Jeff Lasala, Tor.com and his fantastic Silmarillion Primer. As we touched on in previous shows, if, if you are reading along with us, if you are delving into the Silmarillion, whether it's, it's the first, second, third, tenth time, you will still not want to miss out on what Jeff is doing because he puts it in a certain way that is funny, informative, um, and I would strongly recommend it. There's also Olga, bless her. Uh, at Melody underscore Muse and her amazing Middle Earth Reflections. Um, Again, a blog where she just takes an aspect of Tolkien's work and she puts it in to such beautiful language and and criticisms of it. Here, here. Yeah, Yeah. it's really good. Olga's always got something insightful and intelligent to say, so check her out. And then, Uh, last but not least, uh, the thing I wanted to just add, uh, Caitlin, at... Uh, Grim Cookies, she's been brilliant from 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 the word go. She's she's always been uh, helping us, supporting us, and she came up with a fantastic idea for the Facebook group for March. So Middle Earth March uh, is going on in the Facebook group. So do check that out. Get and, in that um, game. That's yeah. been fun. It's different uh, themes every day. There's a there's a post that sort of tells you what the uh, the theme is for today. And today it was I think. Uh, bravest moment in Tolkien's le- legendarium. Yeah, it makes you and, think. Uh, it's it's, it's it good fun. fun. We, we had some good conversations there. Uh, ads, you basically covered your homework there, so assign a chapter while you're at it. Okay, right. Homework for the next podcast is to read of Ole and Yavanna. And what I should say is it's a real good one. The opening, the opening sentence says, it is told that in their beginning... The dwarves were made by Ole in the darkness of Middle-earth. If that doesn't make you want to go and read that chapter, I don't know what what will. It is brilliant. Awesome. Uh, Thanks, everybody. Uh, We want to say hello to Tumbling Saber Podcast on the Star Wars side of things. Check them out. Star Wars Commonwealth, all friends of ours and worth your time. Matt Keegan and his novel Hindsight. May Hella on Yay. the YouTube channel. We missed you, May, and we look forward to having you back next episode. We did miss you, Ads. May, but we're much quicker. Well, yeah, but it's probably because we didn't say anything smart this time. That's true. That is very true. We need true. you for that. <laughs> um, yeah, no, you were missed, and we you look forward to missed. having you back. And Ads, it was really fun doing this with you. Definitely. I always enjoy recording night. It's exciting. It's fun. And I can't wait to hack this thing in the editing room and get it out to the yeah, and, people. And, and I'd like to say just a quick thank you to you, James, because I don't know how much time you put in 
bless you, to producing these fantastic uh, audio treats uh, for everyone to listen to. Um, if you have enjoyed listening to one, two, three, and four, and you've enjoyed listening to this one, it is largely because of James, because he puts so much work and effort in the sound effects, the the comedy. So, thank you, James. Oh, thanks, man. No, I'm definitely gonna cut that. That was that was too much. Uh, you're not. Fan you're not cutting it. You're not. <laughs> I'm taking. A, I'm taking a video right now of this conversation. <laughs> That's funny. Um, all right, maybe I'll leave it in. But uh, the last thank you is to everybody who's stuck around this long and is still listening to us and that crackling fire and Harry Merle's music. Good night to all of you, and we can't wait to have you back for episode six. Take it easy. Good night, guys. Bye. Sorry, James, um, I just have a mouthful of lembus over here. <laughs>